Hey friends, if this is your first time listening to the Spillway podcast, we encourage you to start at the prologue and work your way up to this sequential episode. If you choose to forge on despite this plea, keep these four things in mind. First, we are a serial. Our work is relational, and the beginning episodes are about building trust, familiarity, and shared frameworks and contexts. And also, white people talking to white people about white people things is a newer concept for a lot of folks. We don't want to push people into the deep end. So please, save yourself the headache. We'll be here when you're caught up. Two, stay in your own lane. We build space to examine, critique, hold, and love white people as we navigate pushback and relapse in the mechanics of white supremacy and white shame within white culture and white culture alone. And that's however much we can in the fluidity of culture. Three, we're in the combined fabric of destiny. Our humanity, as Dr. King defines, is interrelated. Everyone is caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. That's point one. Point 3.5, we are a piece of the broader racial justice movement. We're not trying to divert resources nor claim that we're a one-stop shop. Being in cross-cultural community, educating ourselves, and being in good relation is unquestionably vital to our work. This show is about white people, cleaning and mending our own section of the fabric and the work we need to do before, during, and after showing up in shared spaces. And lastly, one right way. This form of grounding empathy, compassion, patience, and understanding at the core of white culture may or may not work for everyone. That's okay. There are other resources out there. We all share the same goal as beautifully defined by Adrienne Marie Brown to create a world where everyone experiences abundance, access, pleasure, human rights, dignity, freedom, transformative justice, peace. We long for this. We believe it is possible. We're trying this approach, but that doesn't mean that it's the best or right approach for you. If it doesn't apply, let it fly. And with that, for better or worse, we began entering the spillway. Should we talk about Karen's? Do we talk about Karen? Do we talk about- I mean, we can, yeah. We've like mentioned them as like a thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we've like really gone into like the dissection of the Karen. To me, the Karen, I don't know if I've said this yet. I've always felt a very uneasy sense around Karen's um, for two reasons. One, I think- the examples that we have in the media of like barbecue Becky or the like the Karen haircut, mm -hmm. uh, someone wanting to speak to the manager. I like get it. Some of these things are like really frustrating. They're humiliating. They mm -hmm. take away our humanity as white people. Mm -hmm. um, and I get a moral injury when I like see them doing awful things. Mm -hmm. And I think there's this other piece that... I think if white men were doing it, mm. like speaking to the manager, which they do all the time, calling the police, they do all, the, all time. the time, all the time. But we like mock women because there's this like little, like just a sprinkling of misogyny in there. <laughs> Let's just add a little bit of misogyny in here. I just imagine Julia Child being like, sprinkle the misogyny. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I cannot help but when someone brings in or talks about Karen's, just like a little bit of misogyny just like creeps out of their pores and into the table or into the conversation. And it just makes me feel a little awkward mm -hmm. because we're, we don't talk about women and white women the same that we do white men. I mean, no. no. Yeah, never. 
And so that's always made me a little uncomfortable. Yes, they're doing and have done some shitty things. Right. And let's also not get out of hand here. Right. The Karen thing. First, my first thought when I first heard the Karen, when I first saw that the Karen was becoming a thing, mm-hmm. I was like, oh no, poor everyone named Karen. <laughs> Just anybody named Karen. Um, but my yeah. second thought was like, okay, I'm not that. I'm not mm. a Karen. I, and if everything I have to do from this moment forward has to prove that I'm not a Karen. Mm, and I'm a shaming thing. Right. And I've definitely spoken to the manager before. I have too. And so for me, I think there's like an additional layer that Evangeline touches in her work about, yes, we are also experiencing discrimination on a daily Mm-hmm. But we're not having to experience the things that folks of color are having to experience right? at the same time. And so we need to make sure that we're like tending to our own needs and wounds and hurts and mm-hmm. harms. Mm-hmm. And there are these other ways that we can harm folks too. Right. Just because we are um, victim. <sighs> victim seems like a weird word, but um, just because we feel how that feels Mm. and knowing that it's like we say at the beginning of every episode, you know, hurt people, hurt people. Yeah. And that's easy to turn around and do when you're hurting. Well, I also, I think I just want to like name that the tagline is hurt people can hurt people. Uh, because I think what Evangeline is doing is trying, to like, <laughs> is trying to support people to move into the can territory oh. rather than just like, oh, you're hurting. So you're inevitably going to hurt this other person. Because oh, I feel yeah. Like, no. Yeah. Yeah. Like that Sorry. is, I, I think what you just did is like it, you showed exactly what like the liberal left movement is like, oh, no, you're this woman. You will always be hurt. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're white. You'll always be racist. Right. Mm-hmm. This like the always the inevitability of your mm-hmm. experience. Yeah. And it's not like that. It doesn't have to be that way. No, no. It doesn't have to be that way. And so like, I totally get what you said because I sometimes get tripped up with it too. Right. Cause it's, yeah. I think I've also heard it so much without the can, like just in the world. Like I've heard that phrase before, but mm-hmm. in my head, it's always hurt people, hurt people, mm-hmm. not hurt people, can hurt people. Right. It goes back to redemption. It goes back mm-hmm. into reformation. Can you... Do, do humans have the ability to change? Mm-hmm. And that can, to me, makes the world a difference. Yeah. And I'm starting to get there with you. I still think that you have to want to. Yeah. And some right. people, I believe strongly that some people don't have the I want to. And I'm trying to get to the place where I'm like, okay, let's, you know, but people have to prove to you that they don't want to, like give them that, that chance. I have had to walk away from really beautiful relationships because people couldn't imagine a can. Mm, That's painful. I'm sorry. It sucks. And I have to hope that one day they can see the can. That one day they will see the can. Right. And you're not going to cancel them. Because right now. Yeah. Because right now they can't see the can. I'm not going to act all righteous. I am not going to cancel someone else because they're on a different journey. Mm -hmm. Or because our journeys aren't lining up right that doesn't make sense also you don't know the complexities of that person's life right like we know people really well but we don't know every experience they've had no so right and maybe they have like a whole bunch of harms Mm -hmm. that they are still working with and trying to mend and heal and work through and live with and manage Mm -hmm. yeah when when we're ready we're ready but weird we're just like talking about like cancel culture and white women mm-hmm. simultaneously while mm-hmm. preparing for this. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Can cancel. Cancel. Can. Can cancel. <laughs> cancel culture is about the inability to believe that people can change. And whether that's, whether those people are us, that we don't believe that we have the capacity to change, or we believe that other people do not have the capacity to change. Oof. Can cancel. <laughs> Uh, um, I think we're at, we went over by three minutes. Oh my God. Shut it down.
welcome to the Spillway Podcast. I'm Jenny. And I'm Lauren. We believe three things. Hurt people can hurt people. White people are hurting. And our healing is possible. This is a podcast devoted to understanding the complex nature of living as white people in America. Without supremacy or shame. A few months ago, Lauren started an organization, The Spillway, around supporting white people to work through perpetrator-induced traumatic stress, or PITS, and intergenerational trauma. Lauren offers this service with the acknowledgement that healing work is merely one mechanism within a larger network required to sustain our collective movement towards racial justice. Lauren seeks to grow the services available rather than redistribute where we put our efforts and funding. To get this message out there, Lauren asked one of the most compassionate, ferociously tender, hilarious, and incredibly smart humans they know to join them on this podcast journey, me. Lauren and I come from similar yet separate backgrounds. Importantly, we offer incredibly different perspectives, sometimes just by who we are as people and other times by the different identities we hold. We are committed to building compassion, understanding, empathy, and patience into the present and future of whiteness and white culture. We cannot change the past, but we can change the future through the actions that we take today. We seek to embody the work of James Baldwin, Sonia Renee Taylor, Kazuhaga, Rezma Menakam, Kai Chang Tom, and countless others asking for white people to, in so many words, get our shit together. Since starting the spillway, there's been consistent feedback, sometimes within the same space, that white people are engaging this work with closed hearts and minds. This work can be difficult, and it can be beautiful. It's an exercise in vulnerability and unlearning perfectionism with real-world consequences. All of this in the age of seven-second judgments. We hope that the spillway and our living in it can give others the courage that's needed to join us in this work. We know that attempting to be vulnerable and consenting to learn in public is incredibly terrifying work. And yet we have to start somewhere. Conversations of race and racism aren't going away anytime soon. Given our incredibly different places in the world, we're trying to create a middle ground where white people can get together to talk and create action around the paradox of being white in the US, where we are simultaneously the perpetrators and the victims of race and racism. And so here we are, two white people committing to the work of individual and collective healing around race and racism for white people. Healing ourselves is no one's responsibility, but our own. Let's heal together and grow to stop the impacts of race and racism in the lives of people of color and our lives as well. Welcome to our podcast. As a white Jewish queer anti-racist, Evangeline has been ruining Thanksgiving since 1977. A social justice change instigator with a twinkle in her eye, Evangeline has over 20 years of community building and organizational development experience working with clients to integrate racial and gender justice into their missions and activities. Evangeline facilitates leadership development programs to sustain organizers and leaders on a path towards greater wholeness, intentionality, and purpose. After earning a master's degree in educational policy studies, Evangeline spent the first 10 years of her career managing volunteers and staff in HIV AIDS service organizations. After moving to North Carolina in 2002, she has worked in the LGBTQ movement to bring more understanding of the need to center racial justice. Currently, she facilitates transformational change for organizations and individuals through her consulting practice, Beyond Conflict. Evangeline is a poet, wife and mother, artist, and justice worker. She is extremely grateful to call Greensboro, North Carolina home. In 2015, 
Jenny, I don't know if you remember this, but I went to a creating change conference out in Denver. And the only reason that I went to this conference is, well, so I'm from Colorado and my parents live like two hours south of Denver. And so I was like, oh, I can go to this conference and I can go like hang out with my parents for a second. And like two birds, one stone, like that'd be great. And so I go to this conference and the very first day before the conference even begins, there's a day long racial justice Institute at the beginning of this conference creating change, which is like very specifically an LGBTQ national conference on creating a national movement of change uh, for the good. And it was the first time I was ever invited into an affinity space. And so it was bizarre and that I had never been told that white people should talk to other white people. So it wasn't until I was like 27 years old that I was told that white people should talk to other white people about racism. And so here I was in this space and in comes the facilitator who we are joined with today. And my world just kind of like upended of, Mm -hmm. oh, wow, this is the work. This is how we hold each other accountable. This is how we build love. Mm -hmm. This is how we build communication. This is how we build like safety. And even that's in like air quotes, but it became this like other world that I was never even aware of within racial justice or just even within like connecting to my own humanity. And so I've always held Evangeline Weiss very close to my heart um, as someone who, who like showed me the road. Mm-hmm. Like I, I had, I had the keys, I had the car. And then someone was like, and then here's this map. Like, and I don't know where all of the pieces are. I'm not a cartographer, but like, here's generally uh, an understanding of the road. Mm-hmm. And I just like went for it. And so in starting the spillway, just kept thinking about you and trying to create a space very intentionally for white people to really lean into our own humanity. And welcome. That's amazing. Thank Thank you you so much for being here. Wow. I mean, it's such a beautiful thing to be reconnected because you do these things. I, I get up in front of rooms and I do my thing and it's just... You know, there's always that lingering question of like, did it land anywhere? <laughs> like how, you know, especially at a conference when there's like thousands of people and it's just the scale is kind of cuckoo bananas. Right. So it's just really lovely to be reunited and to hear that it did it did land and that you have um, deepened your journey. And I'm really, really glad that I got to be a part of that. Well, thank you. I, I still remember running up to you after the conference and I, I know that there's like so much fatigue that happens after you facilitate something and you just want to like go in a, like a, like a room by yourself, maybe smoke a cigarette. That was definitely me in 27, 27. You know, like, I just need to be by myself. And I just, I just, I want to learn more. Like, how, how do I do this? What, what do I do? And you gave me amazing recommendations and I took them with me and I still, I kept my notes with me in my, my folder for work so that I could be reminded of why I was doing this work and what work was so important to keep pushing me forward on this map. Mm. So thank you. Um, I'll start because I I just finished listening to the podcast episode that you sent us with this that sweet uh, Mandy. And you said something that really struck me, which was when you, so when you microaggress um, to a person of color, your job as a white person is to hold space for however they respond to that and to apologize sincerely, and then to go find another white person to sort of unpack your grief and, you know, your feelings around that. And one of the things that Lauren is coming across in starting this spillway is that when you try to go find those white people to, to hold space for your grief and your frustration and, and the pain that comes with with causing hurt to a person of color, you get, you find on either sort of either end of the spectrums, you find a lot of accountability abuse. So, so my question is how do you hold the evolving nature of the human experience and amidst essentially cancel culture? So how are we able to reach out to other, you know, or find other white people to hold space for us in that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think that building community, having a caucus space or a regular space that you can dip into, so you're not having 
to like build relationship, introduce yourself, give context, explain your heart, and then ask for accountability all at the same time. Mm -hmm. So if you have two or three people, like it could be the two of you who have mm -hmm. a little, you know, first Friday of the month, let's have a little check in on how our whiteness is going. Um, and it's like a cup of tea, a virtual cup of tea. I don't know if you're, if you can hang out. Um, but I, I think it's really important to anchor in a community that, that is meaningful, that can, that knows all of you and that can give you permission to screw up and that will, you know, I need that. I need to be loved through my trespasses. I need to be able to go and speak to the places where I make mistakes. I make mistakes all the time. And I don't want to have to have that community like reinvent itself every week or every year. So I think there's something about like longevity and being held in community over time that really matters. And I think, you know, cancel culture is a, is a beautiful example of white supremacy culture. Mm -hmm. It's really ineffective. And if we want, um, you know, we, we need to throw a better party than white supremacy. Right. And so if we're, <laughs> if we're fighting anti-racism, you know, if we're doing anti-racism work, we have to make it um, inviting. We want more people to join us, right? We need, we need to build our numbers. And the only way to do that is to be able to love people in their imperfection, in their mistakes. Um, and I think it's helpful to remember, like I had a journey. I didn't, I didn't wake up one day just like, you know, quoting Ibrahim Kendi, you know, it's like, I, I, I had to have my own awakening. And I think there's some humility in, in that and recognizing I'm on, I've been on a journey. I'm on a journey. This person's on a journey. The, the, the mistake that Jenny made today might be the mistake that I make tomorrow. And that Lauren makes next week. Like, how do we have some humility in that? And I mean, I have a lot more to say about cancel culture, but I, I think I'll pause there. <laughs> I mean, I think that's, that's fair. <laughs> when I hear the, the mistakes piece, I think, why can't we catalog that somewhere? And that to me becomes the spillway of, oh, hey, there's this mistake that I made. I want to be honest about it. Mm -hmm. And I want to share in my vulnerability that this thing just happened. Mm -hmm. And one, you can learn from my mistake so that you don't have to replicate this. That, that saves your humanity and it also saves a person of color from having to go through this experience too. Um, but then it builds community and it builds like a positive white anti-racist community, but that requires that we be vulnerable and yeah. white people love to cancel other white people, yeah, especially when I, it comes around vulnerability. Yeah, I have this great story. So my first ever um, I knew I was white and I was like going, I was showing up in spaces with my individual analysis of my own whiteness as a Jew, as a queer. But my first time I ever put myself out there to like invite other white people to join me um, was down here in North Carolina in 2002. And I was working on a university campus and I was doing these talks where I would get up and I would like talk about like, how messed up we were and how white people needed to figure out our stuff. And I was like, finger point, finger point, finger point. And I would be done and people would like run for the door. It was like, <laughs> they could not get out of the room fast enough. Oh, um, no. And I, I had um, a mentor at the time and he was into Jungian archetypes. And I have a high warrior. I have a high warrior justice year archetype. And I have a very low um, orphan, a very low, um, ask for help. I've gotten better over the years, but at the time my orphan was like really exiled. So he suggested to me that I give the talk, not from my warrior stance, but mm. from my orphan stance. Like mm. what would my orphan say? Oh. And so it was, it was like MLK day on this college campus. And I got asked to speak and I was like, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to give the talk from my orphan. And I called the talk six mistakes that I've made as a white person. Oh. And the, you could have heard a pin drop. People were totally into it. And when it was, when I was done, I had a line of like 20 people that wanted to talk to me. And I was like, holy shit, this is a game changer. Like mm -hmm. I have to model being 
scared and making mistakes to if I want other people to join me in this space. And it really impacted me um, to just see how receptive, like white people were yearning to talk about our mistakes. And there wasn't space to do that. There's plenty of like yelling and screaming or go read a book, be in my book group, give me money. There's plenty of that, but there's not a lot of um, that that kind of like hold me my shame because I don't want to sp- I don't want to spin out and get paralyzed and go into a shame spiral and never be seen again right yeah also that doesn't help anyone right like the shame spiral it doesn't no, I mean it helps Netflix <laughs> it helps Ben and Jerry's it right? sure does uh, oh Ben and Jerry's <laughs> they'll be okay with other things I right. think Ben and Jerry's <laughs> they don't require a shame spiral no. Oh, I love that. Oh, it helps Netflix. That was wonderful. <laughs> it's so true. We need, uh, I think, I think we need more white failures. I think that that is so important that we allow for fallibility within our movement and that perfection, and I feel like perfection is such a tenet of white supremacy. Yeah. And what I've really experienced with the spillway is every time I try to post something new on social media or a new angle or a, uh, a new invitation into hurt, into vulnerability, into compassion and empathy, I get, oh, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You're wrong. And then I try to engage in conversation and they never come back yeah. because they're just so taken off with, oh, no, 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 no. We have to do this right. We have to be perfect. We have to always be diligent so that nothing, no weakness is ever kind of explored. And can't you, I mean, if you, if all you do is power through racial justice work, then aren't you replicating white supremacy culture through your Mm anti-racism? And and how do we help people see in the mirror that, you know, you can come up with your KPIs and you can have your your dashboard of anti-racism work and check all your boxes and make all your assumptions but isn't that alienating and not culture building so you know there's something about wanting to your what you're talking about is actually creating a culture that has never existed and so i'm interested in like how to support this the imagination the white imagination of like what does a concerned vulnerable um curious white culture look like Mm-hmm. And and people may feel really uncomfortable with that role as opposed to the role of like, I have my clipboard, I have my checklist, don't, don't get in my way. We talked to one other guest about what's a better motivator, shame or love. And, you know, he came back and said, love, absolutely. So assuming that we believe that's true, how do we get more white people to center love into this work? Well, I think it's, I think it's a both and. I think that we have to, we have to recognize that white people are in va- and can be in vastly different places. Sure. Um, and so the, the short-term gain that comes with shame is that a person's like, oh, I shouldn't say that, okay? I'm clear, I, sh- I won't say that again. So there's like a short-term gain in that I've been schooled around my language or I've been schooled around taking up too much space or whatever the particular shame bot thing was. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the, and that's, we need that. I mean, I, I needed to get, somebody needed to jerk my slack as my wife likes to say, somebody <laughs> needed to jerk my slack and I needed to sit up and go, oh shit, I can't do that again. There are moments where that's necessary, but that's not a movement building strategy. That's not a teaching tool. It's a it's a moment in time. It's like an isolated thing. I don't want my kid to touch a hot oven. I yank them back from the hot oven, but that's not the sum total of my parenting skills. And so I think where where white anti-racists can sometimes this this idea of a moral imagination, like we lack the permission in some cases, or we don't make the time or someone tells us it's not strategic. It's not strategic to use your imagination. Um, And so we, maybe we're waiting for people of color to do it for us. I mean, Adrian Marie Brown writes prolifically about the importance of the, of using our imaginations to get out of here and that all organizing is science fiction. 
But do white people actually believe that? Are we willing to put in the, the time? So love is an important tool and it, it can't happen outside of an accountability context. I want both. Right. I want support, which is my word for love, what y'all are calling love. Like I want to, I want support, but I also want accountability. If all I'm getting is love and support, that's like sappy and vapid, and I don't really believe it. Right. And if all I get is chastised and yanked on and told I'm doing it wrong, then I'm only going to stick around for five minutes. What we, what I would say is what we really need in our organizing spaces is we need that balance of support and accountability. And that can only happen in relationship. It's really easy to just give somebody a high five in passing or, you know, an emoji on their post or what have you. Like <laughs> I can love, 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 love. But if you're my neighbor and I'm sick and tired of your dog pooping on my, I don't know, Japanese maple, then um, so I'm going to actually... Right. I'm going to actually need to have a conversation with you that is not just like high-fiving you on Facebook or what have you. Right. Um, so it's like we we have to go for the harder, more vulnerable, more threat threatening conversations because we don't know what the outcome will be. If you're having a conversation where you're certain what the outcome is, it's probably not getting us to that imaginative next place. Right. I can't even think about the next question. I just want to sit in that for a moment. That is so lovely. Like I only want to be having conversations that I have no idea where they're going. That's the only kind of conversation I'm interested in having. And if you're just here to tell me I'm doing it wrong, that's boring. Okay. Got it. What's next? Or if you're only here to tell me that I'm awesome, that's equally boring. <laughs> like, what's next? <laughs> right. Like I, I want to be engaged the truth of what it means to live in in this in this complexity this reminds me of a quote that if everyone in the room has the same definition of justice it's not a diverse room mm. and that's what this reminds me of if that we're all showing up with the same understanding of of movement building we're not actually building a movement we're building a tower without any kind of broad structure and it will just tip over immediately mm. i like that I mean, we have to invite discord, right? Mm -hmm. But that discord has to be relationship relational. I think we live in a very conflict avoidant world. We have we have lots of examples of conflicts going really badly, right? Bombs dropping, that's you know, people losing their tempers, being violent with one another. Um, and then we have lots of examples of avoidance, right? Like, mommy, why does that man only have one leg? Oh, shut up, don't talk about that, let's go, right? So like, we don't wanna talk about the hard things or we wanna drop bombs on people. It's like, these are the extremes that we're living in. And if we wanna be in a negotiated space where we're trying to figure out what does justice mean or what does equity mean in this organization or, what does power look like? Whatever the question on the table is, um, that negotiated space needs to be able to tolerate a certain amount of discord. And that discord needs to be facilitated, which is why I think a lot of leadership programs could, should, might include facilitation skills because we're all kind of, I mean, I could go off on like death by meeting now, like this, the, the number of horribly facilitated meetings where the conflicts that need to happen aren't happening. Mm -hmm. And instead we're having like the wrong conflict over and over again. Right. And it's like, how can we get rid of those wrong conflicts and actually have the conflict that the group needs to have? Mm. Mm, conflict we need to have. Conflict. Yeah. My brain just exploded. Yeah. Conflict we need to have. That's love. <laughs> Having it the is. right conflict. Yeah. That's love. That's what mm -hmm. that's what it means for me to say we're, that anti-racism is going to center love. Mm -hmm. I just keep going back to what you said about, you know, you said um, that you call what we're calling love support. And that was such a huge opener. Um, in my mind, love is support. I mean, you were also saying that we need support and accountability, but in my mind, you know, love, I think a lot of us are raised with love as like a Hallmark card, you know, that sort of love, um, very sentimental and, you know, let's hug everyone and all those types of things, which it, which it can be, but also that idea of, of supporting support being the love. I just, I don't even know if I'm articulating how much my world has just changed with just a simple shift of 
of perspective. Well, when you when you think about like what is the support this person needs, right? Like going back to mm-hmm. calling out. That's why calling out is so easy. That's why cancel culture is so easy because it doesn't require anything of us. It's just lose your temper. And like the only place that I'm down with calling out is like if I'm standing in front of Capitol Hill, right? And I'm <laughs> holding a sign like, mm-hmm. yes, let's call. Like we call out up, right? It's like we punch up. We don't punch down. That's what's so intoxicating for so many people about cancel culture is that it's lazy. It's easy, mm-hmm. right? I can just block you. I can just discard you. I don't need to engage you. I can walk away from those 53% of white women who voted for Trump. I don't need to try to figure out how to talk to them, right? It's it's an incredible shift to think, well, actually, how do I support how do I support people to make another step in their journey, right? To like unpack what is it about a particular political moment or a policy or the way an administrator is showing up in their college campus or the way an LGBT center is being run, like whatever the whatever the issue is, what does it mean to support someone to consider a different reality or a different set of needs, a different definition of justice? Right. And you can't have that conversation if you're giving someone the finger, like it's just not going to go well. Right. I wonder, you know, it within that support, what does forgiveness and grace look like when we're supporting other white people in, in this work, in this space, in these spaces? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that we have to start with ourselves. I think there's a, a fairly, large swath of white people that I worked with, especially in the last couple of years, it's been pretty rapid fire, lots of work, lots of white people suddenly wanting to like get, um, get real. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of shame in that. There's a lot of feeling of like, oh my God, I'm X, Y, Z years old. And I didn't know. Um, I mean, Lauren even opened with it, right. And telling, telling the story of being 27 and never considering white people talking to white people. Now I don't hear Lauren in like a shame spiral about it, but I think that we have to forgive ourselves to some extent, like we're dropped down on the planet. We are raised in the community that we're raised in and we have to forgive ourselves for buying into you know, the, the red pill or the blue pill, Neo, which pill, right? Like we have to forgive ourselves that this is this, this is it where we landed and how we landed. But then once we, once we're awake, once we are doing our, our work, um, I think it's so easy to get caught up in shame or guilt and become paralyzed and think you're never going to get it right, partly because people are telling you you're doing it wrong. I mean, there's just so many things that would take somebody and yank them off their path. Mm -hmm. And so we have to forgive ourselves. Um, But I also, I feel like there's a a degree of grace that I have to have with myself and with Mm -hmm. all of the people I'm working with, because it's that premise of like people are doing the best they can with an incredibly complicated, hard situation. And uh, I feel like white supremacy is a billion trillion dollar industry. Like yeah. it's, it's going heavy every day, all day long. I, I like to say there's a check in my mailbox for shutting the fuck up. And my job is to like, not go to my mailbox and not get the check and not cash the check. Yeah. And it takes a lot of thoughtfulness to not cash that check. It's really easy to just go on. Jenny, when you were talking, just bringing up the words grace and forgiveness, Mm -hmm. it struck me how gendered that language is, Mm. unfortunately. And how do we, how do we make sense of the intersection of race and gender in this conversation of racial justice? Mm. Yes. Yeah. How, how do we, how do we hold forgiveness and grace with white men who I think historically are not showing up to racial justice in the same way that white women are mm-hmm. or the way that white non-binary folks are. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough one. I think there's not, um, there's not a lot of space for white men, at, you know, cis straight white men, maybe in particular, but I think it's, um, it's hard. It's a, the compounding impact of being, of being white and being male and being cis. It's like, what's the, What's the message that white men are getting right now? 
like the message that they're getting is you fucked up, you ruined the world and you should just take a seat, <laughs> right? Like that's the message. So if that's the, if that's what's playing on the intercom all day long and I have any power whatsoever, um, I am gonna do everything I can to turn the volume on the intercom down, focus on my cryptocurrency or whatever, and um, like do my thing, right? And if I don't have that much power, I might be become addicted to opiates, or I might, um, you know, become infatuated with the Confederate flag. And it's like it's I want to change that. What's playing on that intercom? Like, I don't want it to be white men, you fucked up, you ruined the world, take a seat. Like, I don't think that's helpful. Um, and I actually think it makes for very contentious spaces mm -hmm. because white men are part of community. Right. What do you so, want to have playing on the intercom? Well, for white men, I think it's like, it's not your job to fix this. It's not your job to solve it all by yourself mm -hmm. and, you know, get curious about who you could be working with and get in touch with your heart. That's what I would want playing on the intercom. Mm. Get in touch with your heart, find, make friends mm. and build That's a team and build so a nice. team. Yeah. That's what make I would want. <laughs> you work a lot now with white women uh, doing oh anti-racism work. What, <laughs> what, what is, what is this work to share, share with us what, your, what this work is? Sure. So in 2017, my friend Carrie Points and I looked at each other and we thought, oh my gosh, um, this is going to be what happens in this election. It's going to be really painful and hard. And what are we going to do? There was also the, that was sort of the, for me at least, I will own that I had a totally defensive reaction to all the Karen memes that started coming out on social media. And I was like, oh my God, like I know that white women can do way better than this. Like this mm -hmm. is just horrifying. And I think queer people have been leading in racial justice work like across the country for decades and decades. And um, it's exciting to me. So Carrie and I are both queer and we started um, a workshop called Finding Freedom, White Women Taking on Our Own White Supremacy. And the purpose of the workshop was to examine, is to examine receiving sexism, receiving misogyny, receiving patriarchy, homophobia, and then turning around and perpetrating racism. Like how white women do this um, really backhanded, like I'm oppressed by around gender and now I'm gonna turn around and I'm gonna punch down. I'm gonna mm -hmm. act out white supremacy. And um, we offered the workshop in person and we had a really great reception, Durham, North Carolina, um, 50 people in the room, 50 people on the waiting list. Well, fast forward, COVID happens, we put the workshop online, and now we've had over 700 um, white women take the class, and we've got 15 facilitators teaching the class online. And we've, we're starting to kind of build a community of accountability, build that community I was describing of support and, and accountability. And, I'm really proud of the workshop. It's evolved. There's a part two that we're working on now. Um, and uh, I just completed a workshop for white Jewish women. Mm. That was a trip, really incredible and thought provoking. And I'm still kind of wrestling with what that was like. And then Carrie's about to do a genealogy workshop for white people to consider um, ancestors and oh, whiteness. Wow. So we, it's, it's, it's growing, it's evolving, um, but the, the Finding Freedom Workshop is really um, a solid place, I think, for white women and genderqueer people to do some reckoning with collusion and um, why we collude and some of the things that we can do to stop colluding. Can you define collusion, just for folks who don't know? Sure. I mean, collusion looks different for different people. It could be, but basically it means... Um, partaking in white supremacy culture, using it to our advantage, um, not resisting. So just going the easy route and the easy route might look like being quiet or the easy route might look like being absent mm. um, or just not thinking about it. Um, so I, I talk about the four Ds sometimes in doing racial justice work. There's defensiveness and deflection and denial, and then there's despair. Mm. And those all 
come out when we're, sometimes they come out when we're colluding, sometimes they come out when we're resisting. Mm -hmm. um, but collusion just means going with the flow, cashing that check in the mailbox and saying, mm -hmm. fuck it, I, I worked hard for this and I'm, I'm going to take what's mine. Mm. Mm. When you're working with white women in, in these workshops, are there any inherent qualities or attributes that you see within them that all sort of connect or is that sort of vary per person, I guess? I mean, there definitely are some themes that come up in the workshops and in the work. I think we've hit on a couple of them already in this conversation around shame, perfectionism. Um, for a lot of the women that that transition from calling out to calling in and recognizing that we have a responsibility to like bring more white people into the work and doing that through love is a big tenant of the workshop. And I think that I'm, I'm more attuned to some of the differences that are showing up in the room than the similarities. It's interesting, but I, I definitely think that those similarities have to do with where a person is in their journey. So some of the women, this is their first time in an affinity space. And they're just trying to figure out, like, what does this mean that we're talking about racism and there aren't any people of color here? Um, mm -hmm. And then for other women, I think there's more experience with being an activist and they're coming in wounded. They're coming in raw. They're coming in like, it's a shit show out there. Do you have anything to help? You know, I, I, I think of like old MASH episodes with like, you know, like the helicopters and it's just like chaotic and it's a crisis and people come into the workshop and they're like, we need bandages. Give me some bandages. Um, and then other women, I mean, what's one of the things that's really beautiful is that we're seeing generations, like a grandma and a daughter and two granddaughters coming into the space together. Mm. And that's really powerful. Um, and seeing how those generational differences show up and get talked about, in addition to talking a lot about class and how we are socialized into our whiteness through our, our socioeconomic class experience. And um, I learned what I know about being white, I learned by being upper middle class. And I think that that would be really different. I know that that experience is really different than some of my white working class um, colleagues. Within these, these themes that you're finding, I guess there's like a two-part question that I'm thinking about and it's both interrupting and then expanding. What are, what are themes that you wanna see um, more regularly? um like positive themes and then what are some of the themes that you want to start interrupting a little bit more regularly within white women within the work um that's a great question so the part two to finding freedom is called the yes lab and when we were writing like the description for the yes lab i wanted to call it where perfection goes to die <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but that that might be too intense for people i think we wrote it it's somewhere in the description um this idea that I can't interrupt a microaggression or speak up in a meeting or do anything unless I have like the perfect plan. Like, here's my PowerPoint. I've already got a strategic plan. Like, we can't interrupt because we don't know the perfect thing to say. We don't know how it's going to go. We don't, like, there's so many reasons to collude. There's so many reasons to not say something. And the, what I'm listening for and what I'm looking for is a, is a, bigger capacity for risk-taking, greater risk-taking among white people, but in particular white women mm -hmm. um, in, this, in this instance. Um, I'd love it if white men took way more risks for racial justice. I wanna be clear about that. Um, so what do we need to, to be able to take bigger risks? And um, letting go of needing to get it right or know that it's gonna be perfect or know that everyone is gonna understand what I say the first time I say it. And like, what about being willing to like fuck it up 57 times and that mm. 58th time is like awesome and it goes really well, but I can't, you can't get to that 58th time unless you screw it up 57 times. So like some resiliency, some willingness to get it wrong and learn, learn from getting it wrong and then get back at, get back in there and get it right. Mm. So I, I think that's answering your question, more resiliency, less attachment to getting to having the perfect solution or the right answer. I always say you can't do Howard Zinn in 30 seconds. Like you just, you can't. So um, one of the biggest revelations I think for some people is it's okay to just say, ouch, like 
someone says something and it doesn't work for you, just go, ouch, like pretty sure the meeting will stop and people will look at you and somebody might ask you, what do you mean? Why did you just say, ouch? And then you might say, I'm really uncomfortable. Mm. I don't like that word, or I'm not sure why that picture isn't working for me. And like that, that, that is in of itself an interruption, right? Mm -hmm. That we don't have to wait. If we're in a multiracial space, for example, we don't have to rely on that person of color that we work with to be the person who raises their hand and says, I'm sorry, but that image on that slide is not okay. Or that word is not okay. And we've just gotten so, um, I, I, maybe we haven't gotten, we've always been so over-reliant on folks of color to like do that labor mm. for us. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I think we have to like be careful, right? Mm -hmm. So it's complicated. I don't want to be raising my hand every minute of every meeting. Right. For the first three-ish months of the spillway, I was very intentional on not quoting folks of color in the work. Mm. because I wanted white people to try to build a relationship with other white people without the permission that so many white people desire from folks of color mm. to do racial justice work. Uh, they needed it to be perfect in order to show up before they could even enter the space. Oh, is it okay if I come in here? I, I can come in. Is that okay? And then they would finally, once, once they started to share videos of, of Sonia Renee Taylor, of James Baldwin, Resma Menicum, you need to do this work. You need to do this work. Oh, okay. Yeah. Let me show up. I'm here now. Yeah. I am. Mm -hmm. Yes. They told me to be, I'm going to be here. Yeah. But that kind of that permission seeking that we have as white people, because we don't trust ourselves and we don't trust other white people is a okay. huge thing that I'm finding. Yes. I don't think I have the credibility. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. the only person, and it's complicated because racism impacts all of us. And obviously black and brown bodies way more than white bodies. Mm -hmm. And I would never equate the impact. And one of the impacts of white supremacy on white people is that we are fed a story that we don't have the credibility to speak to racism, mm -hmm. right? That only people of color can speak to racism. And it takes my moral compass away from me. I need that compass. I need that moral compass. I deserve that moral compass. I want it. I get to speak about how racism is messed up. And it, the same way that I get to speak about like the earth is on fire or homophobia is messed up or transphobia is messed up. Um, so I, I agree with you that that permission seeking is insidious. And I also want to build relationship with folks of color and do this work in right. community right. and not be like charging ahead. And then 10 years later, be like, hey, was it OK that I started a podcast about anti-racism? <laughs> you know? yeah. So it's like, how do we find that that balance? But I far more. I mean, far more white people are not doing enough and waiting for someone to give them permission mm -hmm. than there are white people like running, you know, running ahead and going for it in isolation in problematic ways, at least in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Right. Success is going from failure to failure without losing momentum. And that is hashtag the spillway. <laughs> Come <laughs> fail with us. Um, uh, forward, yeah, let's yes. do this. Oh, man. Uh, going back to my first, what we first talked about, which was um, how we invite people or how would you recommend inviting other white people into relationship to, to be able to unpack microaggressions and grief and, and frustration surrounding race and racism um, in a safe way? What would, what would be your, your setup for that? Oh or what is gosh. your setup for that? Because you actually do that with white women. So. Yeah, it's a great question. I wasn't thinking about it for myself though. I, I, that's a funny. Mm. Um, so there's education like mm -hmm. come learn, let's, let's learn together, right? It's an age old consciousness raising political consciousness, mm -hmm. um, you know, the book group, right? So right. there's the education model. Um, I'm a big fan of the action model. Mm -hmm. Like let's take some action together, right? Like maybe this statue needs to go away or maybe the school board needs a little 
reminder that critical race theory is awesome. Like whatever the action is, I'm at my core, I'm an organizer, I want people to organize. Mm -hmm. um, lately, I've been doing it with money because I'm really into moving money out of white people's houses and into BIPOC houses. Mm -hmm. So um, I think one way to invite white people into this work is through taking action together. And whatever that action is, I mean, for, for you, it might be a fundraiser or it might be a postcarding event. Um, and I'm okay with the book group. I'm in a book group right now for this whopper. They were her property about white women slave owners. And mm. it's a hard read. And if I wasn't in a book group, it would be really hard to finish this book. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't want to degrade learning together. I think it's a great thing. Um, a film series, let's watch, you know, let's line up one movie a month for 12 months and, and hang out together and watch movies that have race in them. So I, I think there's a ton of ways to invite people to be together and to be thoughtful. Um, and I also run a, I run a free monthly white caucus and I'm going to invite the two of you to come drop in if you ever want to come be in the space, but it's, um, it's usually the third Friday from 12 to 1.30. And that's just a space for, it's a really casual, like people don't have to tell us they're coming or they're not coming. You show up if you can, you don't show up if you can. But I, I think there's so many different levels of commitment you could ask people to make from the like, hey, come to this free monthly caucus mm -hmm. to commit to this 12 month film series. Right? <laughs> and I think it's like, I if it wasn't COVID, I would say feed them, mm -hmm. you know, feed them, feed them, feed them and build relationships and know people's stories and mm -hmm. um, engage with people in a, in a radically welcoming way. Mm -hmm. And then be clear that the purpose of being together is to be white together, to be white and thinking about race together. Mm -hmm. So those are just some ideas off the top of my head. I have a coaching group. So I send, I send out a call and I say, you know, do you want to participate in a 12 week coaching group? Mm -hmm. I do one for white women and I do one for white men and gender queer people are welcome to either one. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then classes, teaching online classes and inviting people to come explore um, these, this content um, through an online class. But I, I really think it's important to create a space that's based on based in love and support mm -hmm. where we ask hard questions but we do that not to find people wrong but to help people deepen their understanding of their own power and their own recklessness and mm -hmm. their own journey and the potential they have to to impact their world differently mm. um so that's kind of just off the top of my head to my <laughs> just a few ideas um and we will uh, put some information about those workshops in the show notes for folks to check out. Thank you. Um, I was just thinking though, aren't we supposed to be decentering whiteness though right now? Isn't, isn't that the whole point? Aren't we supposed to be like removing ourselves from whiteness yes. and like stopping this all together? Well, you can't decenter if you don't know you are. <laughs> Um, like it's hard to get out of the way if you don't know you're in the way. So you sort of need someone to be like, excuse me, coming through, excuse me, coming through. Um, I, I think that is, it's a, it's one of the contradictions, one of the, the, um, paradoxes of the work. If you're in a multiracial space and you want to decenter whiteness, which I think is a lofty and important goal for sure. The white people in that space need to know what that means. And the people of color in that space need to know what that means. And they actually need to agree on what decentering whiteness means. Um, if you're living in a white world and you're going to a white church and you're shopping at a white grocery store and you're raising a white family, um, I'm not sure how you decenter whiteness other than because letting it become more explicit and recognizing that it has impact. But so many people, so many white people live very white lives. So I think it's important to figure out what does that mean? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for your children or your, your people? Um, but yeah, I would like us to decenter whiteness, but I don't think we've arrived at a place where we could start saying I'm Irish American or I'm Ashkenazi and that that would change the data of police violence against black and brown people or the 
school to prison pipeline or health right. disparities. So it's kind of a conundrum. We still have to collect that data and we still have to name race because those disparities are still real and shocking. And yet white people still take up an enormous amount of room and energy. With that room and with that energy that brings us to our very last question, you very literally have this microphone right in front of you, two white people listening to this podcast. What do you want to say to them, to us, who are folding their laundry right now, who are sitting in traffic, who are commuting? What do you need to tell white people right now? I would say that if you aren't in an intentional relationship with another white person for talking about this content, you will forget about it. In 20 minutes from now, you won't even remember that you listened to this podcast. And two weeks from now, you won't even remember that you're white or why it matters. And that the only way to stay awake, the only way to stay committed and stay clear about what you want to do with the privilege that you have as a white person is to engage in an intentional, committed infrastructure of some kind building a community of some kind, because the, the white amnesia is real. And if anti-racism is something that you are committed to, then you need a, a community of people to hold you in that commitment. Mm. And, you know, asking yourself, do you have people around you who will tell you when you show your, your butt? Mm-hmm. Also, is there a difference between cancellation and building a strong boundary? I was just thinking about that because I, in starting the spillway, I was thinking a lot about my parents Mm -hmm. and trying to build boundaries around gender Mm -hmm. and the kind of gender harm that I was experiencing with them. Yeah. One of the, I, I so distinctly remember I was back home and we went up to this like little mining town that's now this like gambling town. Uh, obviously. Because that's the natural progression. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, actually, there's like two or three cities in Colorado that were like little mining towns and now have turned into these like gambling resorts. Huh. Um, yeah, it's very bizarre. And so we were driving back from one of them, and my mom was trying to ask me questions about being non binary and what that meant. Uh, and the kind of questions that she was asking were these kind of like educational or these informational pieces. And it felt less like she was trying to get to know my non-binary identity or like my mm. experience within my gender and mm. rather was like trying to just do some gender 101. And I remember I turned to her. I still see this image in my head of her driving in the car and I'm sitting in the passenger seat. And I said, mom, that's something you could totally just Google you don't have to ask me that question. And so I set up this like immediate boundary. Mm. And from that, she never felt the ability mm-hmm. to ask me about gender again. Gotcha. Cause she thought she was, she was probably feeling like she was asking you to learn and connect with you. Yeah. But you felt like that she wasn't asking you about your personal experience. She was like, oh, can you be the spokesperson for all non-binary folks, please, now, yeah. child? Hmm. Oh. And so I do, I hold that as like, there were, there were these two different distinct mm-hmm. experiences that happened. I experienced it as a boundary and she experienced it as a cancellation. Of like, oh, no, 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 no. I can never engage this again with my kid. Mm-hmm. Oh, perspective. Yeah context yeah gotcha and so even uh, and so then like years later my parents gave me this wonderful gift of going to therapy and doing family therapy the three of us Mm -hmm. and it was within that that she was able to really articulate that to me of like this felt like a sever rather than like an invitation to have different conversations Mm. And so then I also had to share of like, I want to be in your life in this, in this way. And I also need you to like, 
do your own work mm-hmm. outside of that mm-hmm. um, because it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to bring that exhaustion uh, into our relationship. Right. Like our relationship will suffer under the weight of this, me being the spokesperson, which is exactly what people of color are saying, right? Yeah. Going back to what you're saying about narrative and context and how those are so important. Mm-hmm. All of that goes out the window in cancellation. Mm-hmm. All of it. Doesn't matter. You did one thing. We will paint you as this single story narrative for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And you do not have a chance or a shot of redemption. Mm-hmm. And so that's why building the spillway is also so important to me because I have this personal connection to this like blurred boundary of boundaries and cancellation. Mm-hmm. And that I really just needed another cis person to have a conversation with my mom. Mm-hmm. But cis people didn't feel like they could talk with other cis folks. Mm-hmm. Or that cis folks weren't allowed to do the work because Mm -hmm. we keep saying center queer and trans voices in the conversations, which yes, we need to do. And cis folks are going to listen to other cis folks in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. It's like that idea of solidarity too. It's just like, just like, oh, I messed up with my child. I said X, Y, and Z. And the other cis person is like, me too. And they talk about it and they cry or whatever. And they're, then they're able to like have more compassion for themselves and the situation and move forward. I love that that's the thing that Brene Brown says, that that's the immediate way to build solidarity and vulnerability. It's just those two simple words, me too. Mm-hmm. I have been hurt. This thing does not feel good. I can't make sense. I can't wrap my head around it. And for someone else to say, oh my God, yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I needed another cis person for my mom. Mm. And so I want to be another white person for a white person mm-hmm. who is having that moment of like, I don't get this. I don't understand this. This isn't making sense. I don't want to say something because I'm afraid I'm going to be canceled. Mm-hmm. Or I'm trying so hard and I just keep falling flat on my face. Yeah. Yeah. Or I don't even want to have these conversations. These conversations just mm-hmm. frustrate the fuck out of me. Or I hate myself so much because I can't because I just I look at my family history and I look at all these things in the world and all I see is my face and how awful it is. Mm -hmm. To all of the above. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. I mean, I'm just here because you're here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here because you're here. But also, no, stop. But also because it's, you know important but I didn't I didn't know all of that about you and your mom I mean I knew something went down but I didn't know that yeah 